0: Hello, and welcome back to the CF Armed Forces podcast, with me, your host, James Clark. We have two guests on this month's podcast, Armida Van Ridge, a research fellow with the International Security Programme at Chatham House, and George Barnes, a member of CF Armed Forces with a military background. Our first guest, Armida, is a research fellow with the International Security Programme at Chatham House, working on issues relating to conflict, security policy, and humanitarian policy. Before joining Chatham House in 2021, she worked as a research associate with the Policy Institute at King's College London, where she led the Institute's work on international security and with the EU delegation to Myanmar. Amida, it's so nice to have you on our March edition of uh, the CF Armed Forces podcast. Um, And just so that uh, our listeners kind of get to know a little bit more about you, can you tell us a bit about your background and um, the research that you're working on at the moment?
1: Yes, absolutely, um, and thanks so much for for having me. It's great to talk to you. Um, so, so yes, as you mentioned, I'm a, a research fellow with the International Security Program at Chatham House. Um, I guess at the moment we've, we've got different pockets that we work on um, so within the international security program we've got a cyber team who deal with cyber issues and um, disinformation misinformation that kind of thing all very current uh, we've got a nuclear team who also look at things like outer space and kind of emerging technologies so that's quite cool and um, and then there's a the conflict team which is a team that i lead um which is equally exciting obviously um but we kind of our work fits into maybe two or three different pockets so one of them is is um looking at humanitarian aid and the second is looking at conflict prevention and then there's a third of kind of other things that don't really fit neatly into one of those pockets but um but i'll tell you a little bit about each of those three
0: um, if that's if that's all right
1: so the, yeah, absolutely yeah i mean it yeah. sounds
0: fascinating can you just just say so that because I mean, so I've, I've I've been to Chatham House and heard. Um, I think I heard Tony Blair speak actually a few years ago, which is absolutely amazing. Um, but could you tell our listeners just before you go into your your the, the sort of three uh, sectors mm-hmm. that you work in, just tell us a bit about Chatham House, what you do, what you deliver, kind of what what's the point?
1: <laughs> That's a great question. So Chatham House is a policy institute and um, is a research institute, but we were initially set up after the First World War. I want to say. Um, alongside the Council of Foreign Relations in the US. Um, And the purpose of those two institutions was really to create a space to convene people to prevent wars. Obviously that that objective wasn't entirely met because we had the second world war afterwards. Um, But but it was really to to bring leaders together um, in a space where they could talk to each other. Um, And so that's a very, very big part of what we still do. So on the one hand, it's producing research, it's producing policy recommendations, it's working with policymakers to Um, I guess, provide an evidence base to underpin some of the policies that they want to um, enact or undertake. But it's also this convening power. Um, And so we have a huge network um, of people. And I mean, most people who will come through London who have something to say, will speak at Chatham House, whether that's Joe Biden, um, whether that's Tony Blair, former prime ministers, whether that's, um, you know, Xi Jinping, whenever he's around, like, it's, It's a huge range of actors um, and it's not just governments, it is also the private sector, society leaders and organisations. So it's really a a range of people that we engage with um, and we speak to and it's all about kind of creating that space for people to have these in-depth conversations about international affairs. Um, We are an international affairs think tank, so that's our focus. Um, and then we work on different areas. So we have uh, thematic focuses and um, geographic focuses. So we, you know, we have a program that specifically looks at the Middle East and North Africa. We have a program that looks at Europe. We have the Asia Pacific program, but then we also have thematic areas like international security, which is where I sit. And then we have um, the environment and society programme, which, for for example, looks a lot at climate change and mitigating and adapting um, to the impacts of climate change. Um, We have an international law programme, which is hugely relevant at the moment in the context of of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Um, So we work on lots of different areas related to international relations and international affairs.
0: Eh, Brilliant. That was exactly the kind of soundbite that I was interested in, not not only... Not only for our listeners i admit but also for my own uh, understanding of, of, of what chatham house provides it's not just a, a beautiful building in london that interesting people speak <laughs> out there's, there's an awful lot of thought that goes on behind the scenes um so you sorry you were talking before about the kind of pockets of research that mm-hmm. you're interested in i think you're going to start with the humanitarian side
1: so one pocket of work that i work on is um the humanitarian principles um so so, the way research institutes tend to work is that um, we're funded for specific research projects, and then we do kind of work around that on an ad hoc basis as well. Um, so, one of the projects is looking at the humanitarian principles, which are kind of a guiding set of principles which guide uh, humanitarian operations operating in conflict zones, but also other areas. But we're interested in conflict zones. So, the principles are humanity as an overall objective. Um, impartiality, neutrality and independence. So for example, um, MSF or the ICRC or other organizations like that, when they go and deliver humanitarian assistance and aid in countries like Syria or Ethiopia or Afghanistan, they tend to follow these principles. Now, what we're interested in looking at is how those organizations actually understand and apply those principles in practice particularly because at the moment, there's, um, there's a big shift in the humanitarian sector happening, which is where, you know, as kind of following the Black Lives Matter debates and things like that, there's been a big shift in talking about how we can shift some of the power, which is ten- tends to be held by the Global North, so countries like the UK, Germany, et cetera, to countries where some of this work takes place. So to the Afghanistans and the Syrias
0: and the Ethiopia So well. almost the receivers of the aid exactly. have more power over how, that, or the, the receivers of that humanitarian support have more of an input into how that that looks. Exactly.
1: Um, and that has raised, raised a lot of questions for the humanitarian principles, because for example, in a country like Myanmar, where there's an ongoing conflict, um, you know, the, the military junta has been acting incredibly poorly, has, you know, violence is is everywhere, um, uh, repercussions are everywhere. Um, can human, can you ask local humanitarian actors to really be neutral in cases like that? Is it feasible for them to say, actually, we're not going to take a stance on this? And so some organisations have taken far more of this kind of social justice approach to it. For example, Oxfam's got a big one in the UK where they say, you know, we're, we're not necessarily always going to be neutral or impartial but actually we're going to do what we feel is right and take more of a human rights based approach anyway so that's one of the things that we're looking at um is what are the implications for that on the ground and what are the implications for shifting some of the power to the beneficiaries of humanitarian assistance
0: that sounds fascinating Um, and i've got to dive in um are you looking at and how if you are how are you measuring outputs so uh, is the is the is the goal to try to identify whether a, let's call it a host nation. Whether a host nation having more um, control or, or more—what's the word? Like more
2: influence ownership?
0: over the ownership, more ownership. Absolutely, yeah, more ownership over that aid uh, or, or support is the is the goal to try and see whether if they have more ownership, you you have better outcomes, and then and what does better mean, or or is the goal? merely a data collection or, or an intra? is it more kind of a qualitative this is what happens if we do x this is what happens if if the situation is y
1: no that's that's a really good question um so i think there are some organizations looking at um how you do so it's, it's called the localization agenda which makes sense um looking at how you do that and how you you measure some of this um, we in this case are specifically looking at the impact for the humanitarian principles and so the question of whether um, are are these principles still fit for purpose in that more localized setting? Right. Yeah. Um, understood. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So that's what we're we're interested in looking at. So you're looking at the application of the principles rather than the rather than any of the outputs of of what's delivered off the back of the principles.
1: Yes. Yeah. Exactly. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. And then, relatedly, we're doing something else on on aid, which is um, how you can what's the best way of delivering aid, whether that's humanitarian or development in countries where the government has, well, where the the national government has limited international recognition. So for example, Libya, um, uh, again, Afghanistan, again, Myanmar, (laughs) um, there's limited recognition. So how do we funnel development aid, which very often organizations like the World Bank and other organizations want to keep doing, but there is this question of how do we have oversight? Um, do we have to ring fence some of it? Do we need to put in place specific auditing measures? Um, should we provide funding directly to communities? Um, so, but what's the best way of doing that? But we're still in the very early stages of that. So I, I, I don't know I mean, I, I the answer yet.
0: <laughs> I, yeah, I find that so interesting because a, a, a very close friend of mine works for, was working for the World Bank and was on the Afghanistan program, working out of Pakistan mm-hmm. and Dubai and Washington and Kabul. And um, when when it was clear that Kabul was going to fall and the Taliban were going to take over, she actually said, you know, this is going to be, this is going to create a disaster of of an unknown magnitude because as soon as the Taliban take control of the government, the IMF have classified, or the the, the US government have classified the Taliban as a terrorist organisation and they therefore can't receive any funding, which then means that all of the development aid and effectively the, 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 the food aid you know poverty alleviation funds it will will no longer put money into the into the country and their overseas assets what limited overseas assets they have will be frozen and you know we're we're seeing the results you know you read the the newspapers um so absolutely absolutely vital vital work and and really Mm -hmm. interesting so and and how how do you get involved in that so you you're a researcher so you you're you're sort of you're looking at studies and or you're or you're carrying out studies how does it how does it work
1: So again, it depends a little bit on on the specific research project and the objective. Um, And there will be different methods that we use depending on what the the purpose is, really. Um, For these ones, it's very much based on kind of talking to people who are are based in those countries and operating those countries and having those consultations with them because ultimately they will know far better than I do sitting in London um but there's been other cases where we you know in in some of my previous roles we will have deployed teams or rather worked with local organizations who will have done kind of interviews or surveys and things like that and then you also provide a bit of capacity building where you train some of these people how to do this. Um, and then obviously we hugely benefit from their understanding of languages and things like that and the cultural context, which is again slightly more difficult to grasp um, from from London. And so it we very often try to have a two-tack approach to it, which is to not just <laughs> what's often referred to as kind of parachute research, where you just dip yep. into the country and do research and then leave without thinking through the impact that may have on the mm-hmm. people you're 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 speaking to and engaging mm-hmm. with, um, but really trying to kind of use networks in other countries and use expertise that's already existing rather than trying to reinvent the wheel.
0: Well, yeah. 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 Oh, that's absolutely fascinating. <laughs> um so um, when you introduced kind of um, sort of Chatham House and you kind of talked to us a little bit about what 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 the what the whole sort of institute does, um, you, you kind of talked about avoiding um, avoiding wars, effectively trying to stop wars, put, convening meetings to try and um, to try and avert, you know, some of the kind of catastrophes that we're seeing. Um, I, I'm interested to know how you kind of feel global conflict um, between state actors and also between sort of state actors and non-state actors, um, how, how it can be contained, you know, what, what, what are you working towards? How, how can we try and limit the, not only limit the impacts of, of modern warfare, but also actually stop it from happening? yeah. That's a that's a really good question. I mean, uh, in a nutshell, to say, we've only got we've probably only got another 20 minutes. So I don't, don't want to put you on the spot. I was going to say, much, uh, how do we stop war?
1: <laughs> it's the million dollar question, which I don't think anyone has the answer to that, um, yeah, to yeah. be completely honest with you. Um, but I think I think in this case, um, to start providing some kind of answer to your question, it's helpful to, to differentiate between what kind of wars we're talking about and what kind of um, conflict we're talking about. So for example, in the case of Russia and Ukraine, we cannot talk about it. Um, that is very much an illegal invasion of another sovereign state. Um, that's one type of war. Um, you know, there are experts who, who work on that kind of thing. Um, I think when we talk about different kind of conflict so and hereby i'm thinking about um conflict in fragile states i'm thinking about insurgencies i'm thinking about um, kind of electoral violence that kind of thing yep. there are some things that we do know in terms of how we can um manage and, and contain some of that um, i guess perhaps the first thing to say is that <laughs> conflict is really expensive like really expensive. Um, there was an estimate, an estimate done by the, they're called the Institute for um, Economics and Peace, which estimated that annually, conflict costs like $14 trillion a year, which is huge. That's about 10 and a half percent of GDP. I mean, it's it's a huge amount of conflict. So if we can try and reduce conflict, that's a good thing because ultimately we're going to get some of that back, right? Yep. Um, and as I said, I think the, the trouble is, <laughs> It's about managing violent conflict. So ultimately, conflict in and of itself is not an issue. Um, so say you and I were to get into a massive disagreement, that's conflict, yeah. Um, yeah. massive disagreement, etc. Ultimately, the question is how do we handle that disagreement? And There's always if resolution conflict afterwards, yeah. yeah. and you know we resolve yeah. it, that's fine, not an issue, that's healthy. Um, if things escalate, that's not good. So how do Please we make that decision? <laughs> Let's not go there. But, but exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, And so in terms of things that we know that work, um, there's... So one of the key things is inclusivity. And so we know that having inclusive institutions is an absolute key thing. Um, We we know that that also helps to... uh, I guess prevent the fraying of a social fabric that can ultimately lead to crisis, including conflict. Mm. Um, so that means addressing uh, inequalities. It means addressing exclusion of particular yeah. groups in yeah. society. It means making institutions more inclusive. So having, for example, a government that only represents one ethnic group um, mm. is not an inclusive government. Um, and it also means including um, or ensuring the participation of women and and youth Groups. Mm-hmm. So we know, based on lots of evidence and lots of work that's been done, that um, peace processes that have included women um, are far more sustainable and likely to last far longer than those that haven't included women. So, so that's a huge issue. Um, the, I guess the the challenge is um, is when it comes to effectively talking about conflict prevention, which is what what we're doing. Yeah. Um, is making the case for something that hasn't yet happened.
0: Um, if you see what I mean, so it's absolutely, yeah. So you're almost preempt. You're you're trying to, you're trying to preempt the appalling consequences of actions, but it's exactly. difficult because they haven't occurred. So you can't say, don't do this because look at the awful consequences.
1: Exactly, yeah. and very yeah. often it's about making the case for investing into particular areas, um, but again political agendas change, there are different priorities. A pandemic comes along, a yeah. war comes yeah. along, things move very, very quickly. And it can be very mm. difficult to make the case to focus efforts on a particular area or on a particular sector. Um, and so this is what something that we're interested in in doing at Chapman House, um, which is a effectively a conflict prevention initiative, mm. which where we want to understand what works in preventing conflict and um, violent yeah. conflict that is and how do we measure what works because that's again the crucial bit um, absolutely and <laughs> um so th- and, and i guess there's been quite a lot of work done on this in the early 90s um, there was the carnegie commission and and other big reports that have been done and they've made a lot of progress um and there's different ways of thinking about it so you can talk about it in terms of um short term Conflict prevention, and there you really talk about kind of early warning systems, which you yep. come across in the work. Um, and then there's also the the longer term work, which is structural prevention, um, yep. that really seeks to address the root causes. And ultimately, you know, as ever, it's a it's a balance between both both of those things.
0: Um, and so, could you give an example? So, a, lo- a longer term, um, it sounds to me like a, a longer term um, method would be to reinforce a state institution which was already making steps towards. Um, bringing in marginalised groups and and, and ensuring kind of equality of citizens. So that would be a longer term method. What would a shorter term method of trying to avert conflict be?
1: Mm. So a shorter term method is, for example, if you know that um, there are going to be elections coming up in a particular country and that those elections are possible to be quite fraught um possible to be contested what are then the specific mechanisms that you can put in place um by you i'm saying stakeholders yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. and that very often includes um again there have been particular cases where uh interventions or or interventions made by the un have been successful but so often it's again about having local capacity and local build-up so yeah. having um something like peace commissions um that were done in, in Nigeria after 2015 elections where it, it was very much an organization set up by and for Nigerians um and that supported um the I guess so there was a bit of violence but not as much as was expected and that kind of having that oversight um helped to have the buy-in from other organi- from other stakeholders in the process and that kind of smooth tensions yeah Um, so that's just one example but it's kind of there will be possible hot flares in different contexts where there is a risk of something escalating further sometimes it's not even just the onset but it's about preventing further escalation and so their interventions can really help Um, and I think the crucial thing as well which is again something that's becoming clearer and clearer is working with local partners local capacity people who are based in the country who know the country who know the context is absolutely essential
0: yeah, absolutely vital. Yeah, and um, um, w- one of the things that you you talked about in your um, um, in this sort of session so far is the role that the, the incredibly positive role that um, women can play in de-escalating conflict and in being involved in peace talks and negotiations. Um, you, you're also involved in um, women in international security. Could you could you tell us a little bit about that and about kind of how how you see that developing?
1: Mm, yeah. So so Women in International Security, or WISE for short, um, it's it's effectively a volunteer-run organization, um, but it was set up in DC, um, I think in the, the 80s or the 90s, um, and they are kind of very, very organized, and they have chapters around the world, and there's a UK chapter as well, um, which was set up in 2017, um, and I was a member of the leadership team from i want to say 2018 to last year something like that okay um but really what we're trying to do and now i'm kind of on the advisory group so i've taken a step back from the the active day-to-day running but it's more kind of a an advisory group role um and what we really try and do is to create a platform for women who work in defense security foreign policy um to kind of present their ideas and their thoughts but it's also to create a network and a community of women working in this space and by that I don't just mean the think tankers and the academics among us of which I'm definitely one but also very much um, kind of service personnel and um, uh those working in government and that really allows us to a network and meet other people but it's so useful and so great to to meet women who work in this field and to kind of get their sense of what it's like and it's just yeah it's just quite a nice happy community yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so we um we kind of, we, you know, we organise a range of events, and then obviously the pandemic came in and
0: scuppered everything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah.
1: Um, But we do, you know, it's it's a it's a bit of a range of things. So we do socials in a pub where we'll ask someone to to come and effectively talk about what it is that they do um not too dissimilar to this conversation actually sure. um, what it is that they do and kind of that sets the tone for the evening but we also do events where if there's um someone passing through london who has expertise or works in a particular field will come come and ask them to speak to a smaller group um, one big thing that we did which i think was absolutely fantastic um we worked with the chapter in brussels the chapter in paris and the uh dc chapter Um, and this was in advance of the the um, the nato meeting in december 2019 so right before the pandemic happened and effectively supported by the u.s mission to nato so they they funded this we um held a uh, um, how do you call it we selected six wise members from across the world to come to london fly them in for i think it was three or four days um attend the kind of sidelines of the nato meeting um which there's always a nato engages event of course
0: yeah there's the yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: exactly the kind of public facing things um so they attended that and then we organized a two-day program of kind of meetings with anyone and everyone from you know key leaders and think tanks to um uh people working in Whitehall and people working in the fcdo so that was a great kind of professional development opportunity for these six women um So, so, yeah, I mean, anyone who, who listens, who may be interested, I do encourage them to, to get involved. Um, I think they've, they've got some exciting plans for the year ahead as well, um, the leadership team, that is.
0: So it's it's just a great way to get involved. Um, well, that's, and that's fantastic. I mean, we'll, uh, you know, and please give me the details offline and we'll we'll hmm. spread it to our, our female members. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm going to ju- jump around a little bit because I'm going to go back to my scripted questions, if that's OK. Gosh, the, lead, <laughs> the, the listeners will never forgive me. Um, but, yeah. But, um, uh, so, moving on from Wise, um, you, you've talked a little bit about Myanmar, but you've you've actually had some um, personal experience, and 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 you know you've you've done some research there. Could you talk a little bit about the situation in Myanmar and how it's changed, and your and just generally kind of a few thoughts of yours, you know, on on the situation?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um... I should probably add a caveat here that I might use to not represent the European External Action Services or the EU. Um, So I was out there. (laughs) I was out there
0: with the EU delegation. (laughs) Um,
1: I would would get told off otherwise. But um, yes, I was out there with the EU delegation in 2014, 2015 for about half a year. Right. um so this was before the 2015 election um which was kind of the first big election which obviously Aung San Suu Kyi won in a in a major landslide mm. um yeah the eu delegation um and so the work of the delegation is very much like an embassy elsewhere so it's kind of on the one hand the the political element of it so maintaining relations building relations um doing a lot of monitoring particularly in Myanmar which so post 2011 is when things really started opening up and there was a slow transition to a more democratic form of government. I say more democratic rather than democratic because obviously uh, a third of the seats in parliament were still held by the military. Um, So it was quite an exciting time Um, and the EU delegate. And so that was one element. And then the second element of the the delegation's work was um, development cooperation. So funding, the EU is a major funder of development programs, much like the FCO and and other countries. Um, And, So they were funding um, development programs, uh, particularly in the fields of uh, health, education, agriculture and livelihoods, that kind of thing. And then obviously a big one was um, governance. So um, improving rule of law, improving policing tactics, um, supporting journalism, open journalism, that kind of thing. And yeah, I mean, living there at that time, it was, as I said, it was such a time of kind of hope and anticipation um just walking through or driving through the streets of yangon i was i was based in yangon you would on every street corner in you know, a run-up to the elections you would see or there would be street bend- vendors selling these big posters of Aung san suu chi or of the nld which is her her party national league for democracy um and you could it was just something tangible in the air this excitement um yeah and then obviously she she won the election with the landslide and the <clears throat> party and yeah. that at the time I think the military wasn't necessarily seeing that um, or didn't anticipate that there would be that much support. So that was already a bit of a kick in the teeth. Mm. Um, then obviously there was um, in I think it was summer 2015 or summer 2016 um, major escalations with the Rohingya, um, including kind of ferry crossings of Bangladesh that so went wrong and things like that. And that obviously saw San position on the global stage change. But in Myanmar, she remained hugely popular. Um, right. And I think that's the thing that was very often missed in the commentary. I was going to say
0: that, that I completely missed that <clears throat> because yeah, I've I no. kind of, you know, followed the news. So I, interestingly, I kind of had a little look at Myanmar from a perspective of um, a sort of security operations contractor and then mm-hmm. moved into a charity role doing operations and security and comms. And so actually we, I kind of looked at Myanmar through two different lenses and <clears throat> certainly looking at it as a British citizen being fed news through UK media uh, you've really had a massive fall from from Grace um so uh, yeah it's really interesting to hear that she was still so popular in Myanmar yeah. despite all of the negative international press you know which, yeah. which from from my lack of my sort of position with a lack of experience uh looked justified yeah I mean, I mean- war crimes slash humanitarian disaster.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I mean, this is the the really difficult thing where so Myanmar is a is a is a hugely buried ethnic um country. So there. Yeah, but over two hundred languages spoken. I mean, it's it's crazy. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, About 80% of that at the time was Bamar, which is um, the the main ethnicity. And so when you're Burmese, that's Bamar usually. Um, And so she is Bamar, most people are Bamar. Um, And so she had a huge support still within that population. Um, Because ultimately, (laughs) this is the difficulty where we talk about Rohingya and we see the human (coughs) rights element of it. Um, That isn't how that's seen in the country. Um, For a lot of Burmese, that is just not the reality of it. And um, the Rohingya are seen as, as I'm sure you know, they are seen as people who came over who shouldn't be there, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, so it's, but I think it just adds to this picture of a really complex country that's really difficult to to grasp mm. and understand. Um, I mean, you know, even with the the military coup that happened last year, um, there again, it's not just the military coup and the regime but you've got all this additional layer of the um the the ethnic um armed groups that in the border regions but when people talk about the border regions they don't quite realize necessarily how big those border regions are um and so those are then using this those groups are also using this situation as a opportunity to try and again kind of claim more rights, um, claim self-determination, claim more autonomy for their regions, etc. So it's a hugely multifaceted country that's really difficult to understand um, and where there's lots of different layers of complexity going on. but it's at the same time it's absolutely heartbreaking just watching mm. what's happening what's there. going on I mean, system has collapsed, the economy has collapsed it's, it's, it's really sad.
0: Well a lot of that investment and a lot of that aid that was being that was being lined up and sent in in sort of fifteen to seven fifteen to sixteen has has effectively been withdrawn. Is that, I think that's correct. Yeah, yeah. So in, in, yeah.
1: So there was already you know, so in 20, 2011, um Myanmar's opening up, lots hmm. of excitement, lots of talk yeah. of investment things like that. In 2015, President Obama came to visit. Um everyone was out on the streets. Again, hugely exciting moment. Um, but already by that point it was clear that a lot of the foreign direct investment and things like that um, that was anticipated hadn't
0: hadn't had arrived or happened, hadn't yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. to the extent that was expected. So that was already a bit of a um But in terms of you know, donor countries and development aid. It was there was a huge influx of aid, um, mm. and now again, there's there's all these questions that I was talking about a little bit earlier in terms of how do you how do you support countries and how do you mm. support populations, even if you're not supporting the regime, when whoever is in charge is not not an appealing party to work with. Um, yeah, and quite a few of those around, obviously.
0: And how do you think? I mean, God, again, I don't try and put you on the spot here, but. How do you see the situation developing? Hmm. Again, <laughs> too, too, too complicated,
2: yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Um, so I think, so, okay, so in terms of geography um, and as much as it, it kind of pains me to say this, Myanmar is not, um, or rather Western countries are not going to go on limb from Myanmar. It's just not strategically positioned um, or positioned in a strategically sufficient or with natural resources that
0: are you know so abundant that yeah we need to get involved
1: yeah yeah and the other thing is it's very much in china's backyard so it shares a border with china you know it's China is involved. Um, And for China, all of this isn't in their interest either, because they had spent a lot of political capital building ties to the NLD, um, who was in power until 2015. Um, But equally, their stance, obviously, on sovereignty and non-intervention in other countries is so strong because of um, the Uyghur situation. So they're they're not really willing to do much either on that front. Um, So I don't... I'm not really willing to pull out a crystal ball, but I think at the moment what we're seeing is a lot of, um, at the international level or at the political level, is a lot of um, fighting over who has a say. So there's been quite quickly in response to the coup, um, a national unity government was was set up, which is basically a shadow government. Um, And they have been calling for international recognition pretty much since they were established um so i think some of this will play out at the political level but ultimately yeah. on the ground <laughs> for people who don't have access to cash money medicine etc um the situation is obviously dire and will continue to be dire for a while
0: well that is too negative a conclusion to the podcast so i'm going to ask you my final question um, and desperately try and uh, try and kind of pull us out of this kind of the dire situation in my mother's face um so recently in UK policy terms, we've had the ISR, and it's a good example of our defence policy becoming um, better integrated with trade, diplomacy and aid. Um, do you, you know, in, in your experience with your kind of expertise, do you welcome that integration? And do you think it adds value? And how do you think the UK posture can lean in to the ongoing global security concerns? Now, I'm not referring specifically to the Ukraine crisis, um, and the invasion of the Ukraine but that's got to be a, f- a factor I think.
1: Mm, no absolutely um, so, so the integrated review was was really interesting um, and I think marked quite a big shift in some elements um, but very much remained the same in, in other elements um, I think what I found really helpful is that it finally provided some clarity on what global Britain means and looks like um, because until then we'd had a lot of talk of you know, global britain meaning and the upholding of the international rules-based order and things like that but it was just there wasn't a lot there really whereas this yeah. really put meat on the bones and really kind of showed the strategic direction where the priorities were going to be um and the emphasis on science and technology was really interesting um yeah. particularly kind of for for my team obviously well so the wider international security team who do a lot of work on um on science and tech within defense and security sure. um I think what I found really interesting, and that's also, I guess, the the second part of it, which was the defense command paper. um, And I guess that also ties very much to to your audience and kind of the armed forces, is this talk of persistent engagement. um, And effectively this new approach to (coughs) working overseas and kind of operations overseas that don't meet the threshold for conflict, um, of which there's quite a lot where it kind of simmers and we don't really know how it's going to develop. but really to kind of work with, to work across the fence, obviously, um, and all of the resources and expertise that defence has um, and MOD has and the armed forces has, but also working with colleagues from the FCDO, so bringing together the military people, the political people, the foreign policy people, the development people. And um, I think that's really helpful and really beneficial because ultimately um, it serves to build capacity in other countries and it serves to bring that multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary approach to something,
0: um, which- And that, that, that kind of, that, yeah. persistent, that persistent engagement sounds very much like it addresses the kind of conflict prevention that we were speaking about earlier, because if you're consistently engaged and you're using every arm of, of the state to try to influence and um, work with a, a sort of partner, you can you can stop conflicts occurring before they happen just by your presence or you can mobilize you know for example if you have short and long-term training teams in country i.e boots on the ground even if there's a small number when they see and understand what's going on they can then feed that back into the wider space and then fcdo and aid agencies and they can all get involved and and that's kind of, as you said, it's almost like a kind of constant monitoring of a a physical monitoring of a situation to try and stop conflict before they happen.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, And I think it's, it's, as you say, it's that 360 approach and that comprehensive approach, which is hugely beneficial because ultimately people bring different perspectives to the table and those are all beneficial. Um, And so that's something so with this chapter housework that we're looking to do on conflict prevention it's very much kind of bringing in the behavioral scientists the psychologists the economists the ir folk which is what i do but that's my bit right i don't i can't talk about behavioral science yeah um, so i think the hmg taking that kind of approach is really beneficial um i think so one of my one of my former colleagues who um, who's actually in the army. Um, so Chatham House hosts on a kind of rotating basis um, a chief of the General Staff Army Fellow, and that's someone that's for someone who is you know, active in the armed forces to come and think basically, and kind of take some time to reflect on some of their some of their experiences for anywhere between nine months and a year. And so um, this guy uh, Will Davies wrote a paper specifically on this kind of persistent engagement point, and so. I think his major point was that to make it work um, and to, especially when you're talking about boots on the ground and things like that, one thing that is really needed is um, specialists rather than generalists. So you need people who know the context really well. um, And you do that through training, through education, through career development, the kind of building incentives and things like that. But you you need people who can understand the context. And I think that goes back to my earlier point as well, where you need to work with, or establish and work with um, networks in the country that are already there to again kind of get more information get that intel that you may not otherwise have had um, So so yeah, so yes i think it's a really welcome development um and i think it's it's interesting because in the past we used to talk about defense engagement and um, whereas this is almost expanding that role a little bit and and making it very clear what kind of situations this applies which is Con- kind of operations below the threshold of conflict which I think that's quite an interesting distinction um, I think one big thing and um, one big question is how we're going to pay for this so because it requires such a huge amount of money and I know that there's been some clarity on that um, but I think it kind of remains it's almost too soon to tell how how is this is going to work in practice and the extent to which this will be done everywhere where they might want it to, to be done
0: Yeah, I mean, it it looks great on paper, but obviously, as you said, it it needs to be properly resourced. And then, of course, you're going to get to the horrible point where if it can't be properly resourced, you're going to only focus on certain regions or areas. And how are you going to focus on those? And what's the criteria? And and it kind of it's uh, it's big and difficult decisions that need to get made as as usual um, in governance and policy. And I think.
1: I think the criteria for that, you know, to some extent, is where where does the UK already have um, resources, okay. and where can the UK most helpfully have an impact, and where can the UK most helpfully deploy its resources. So, is there a point in um, engaging in a context where there is no understanding, no capacity, um, no previous history of engagement? Maybe not. Maybe it's more helpful to if it's a kind of binary choice, which very often it isn't. But is it more helpful to think of contexts and situations right. where actually? The UK has leverage, um, has you know, capabilities to offer effectively. I think that should be part of the criteria.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Amida, thank you so much for joining us today. I've, I mean, I've just found this conversation absolutely fascinating. I hope our listeners do too. Um, and uh, and good luck with the rest of your um, your your projects. And um, I will try and put our members in touch with and um, Wise, who you brought up. So thank you so much for joining us. Much appreciated. Um, and have a have a good uh, rest of the week.
1: Perfect. Thank you. Thank you so much for the conversation. Um, I hope it was it was interesting.
0: On the podcast today we have George Barnes, who commissioned into the Grenadier Guards, completing operational tours to both Iraq and Afghanistan. He also spent several months in London on state ceremonial duties taking part in a wide variety of national events, including Trooping the Colour, the Changing of the Guard, and the Chinese State Visit in 2015. Along with overseas training exercises to both Kenya and the Falklands, George has definitely come to experience the wide range of tasks undertaken by today's Army. George, thank you for joining us on this month's episode of the CF Armed Forces podcast. I'm delighted that we've finally managed to get you on, um, and as one of our um, members and one of our candidate training wing members. I think I'll just come out and say You know what? What motivated you to become a member? Like, how did you find us, and and, and why are you why are you sort of part
2: of the team? Uh, I suppose. Um, well, first of all, thank you for having me on. Um, I, I suppose for me, I just um, ultimately care a lot about armed forces, and I'm a conservative. And I was at uh, home, and I was thinking, there must be something out there. There must be an organisation which brings together fellow like-minded people where where we can sit around a table and nerd out about um, armed forces policy, uh, the the direction of the army, uh, why the carrier groups are a good thing or a bad thing. So after some sort of pretty um, basic Google searching, I came across Conservative Friends of the Armed Forces, and it was pretty self-explanatory from there onwards, really. Great stuff.
0: Um, I mean, you've been a member now for about, I think, about six months, maybe, maybe longer. Like, have you been to any events? Like, what have you enjoyed about, about kind of being a member?
2: Um, several things. I will probably say, first of all, is the breadth of events um, and the speakers. So I particularly enjoyed um, Flick. Drummond's um, talk, for example, back in, I think, September or July um, about the path to being an MP and just drawing out some of the considerations which I hadn't necessarily thought of. Uh, I think everyone knows that it's clearly a slog and a lot of work goes into it, but more raising the points of how best to, I suppose, manage the impact that that might have on your loved ones. Um, It's also been a, a really good gateway into... Other conservative events. So, for example, I went to the conservative conference um, in October and I was Billy No-Mates, um, absolutely Billy no wandering around the conference hall, uh, trying to work out who was who and what was what. Fortunately, I then remembered I was a member of CFAF and there were actually several emails in my inbox from you and all the others invited me to several events there was of course the cff sponsored event itself so uh, i suppose it just helped direct me to make the most of something like conference understand who the key people are to talk to then the opportunities that are there really
0: that's great i mean and that's like kind of music to my ears because you know one of the things that i want to do is kind of connect um you know the the sort of the, the public with the party in terms of um you know the fact that we are the party of the um of the armed forces and then also i want to kind of connect the membership with mps and you know kind of policy makers to try and mm-hmm. encourage that dialogue um, and then also what, what we try and do is also connect you know military people into politics and that's sort of what we've done with you a little bit or we're kind of like uh, one of the conduits for you because you're currently serving yourself or you've, you've got a
2: military background haven't you george yeah um Served in the Guards, um, much of my continued pride. Um, and you are completely correct. Um, I have been able to meet through Sifa a variety of MPs, most of all who have experience in the armed forces, and it's just a great way to understand their pathways into politics, how it works for them, or how it didn't, and understanding that there is is no set way. Um, There are some people who will serve in the uh, armed forces for years and years and years and then make the jump, others who didn't do that much time in uniform but still um, had that link. So it's been uh, incredibly helpful, both in understanding how politics actually works once you live and breathe it, and also understanding, I suppose, the political decisions that are being made every day about um, uh, about how uh, our armed forces work.
0: Yeah, I mean, you you know, you've obviously got this this kind of dual interest, you've got a military background, and then you've got an interest in politics. You know, what do you think separates kind of the Conservative Party and Labour on defence policy at the moment?
2: Um, I would probably say that the Conservatives actually have a defence policy, uh, whereas Labour... Well, I suppose it is summed up by the fact that Keir Starmer comes out and publicly says that Labour supports Trident, and that's making waves. That that grabs headlines in the press. The fact that they're still squabbling over whether we should have a nuclear deterrent, let alone um, the extent to which we should be funding our armed forces, the RAF, taking care of our veterans. It's overshadowed by fundamental issues that have been resolved by the Conservatives literally decades ago. So for me, I would say, um, yeah, Conservatives have a clear vision of what they want to do for Defence. It doesn't. And um, I believe the Conservative policy is the correct one as well, which is a policy of, sustained investment it's about looking after people the capabilities that support them and making sure that everyone and everything in the armed forces is employed properly
0: yeah i mean that kind of that feeds into um what Leo Doherty was saying about um, how, you know, it's important to make the UK, you know, the best place in the world to be a veteran. And, and we've got a little way to go on that. Um, but, but, you know, that just having that as a policy goal and having um, policy papers that back that up is really important. Um, here's a question for you. Do, can you name the Labour uh, defence uh, shadow minister?
2: No, I couldn't. I think if there was a pub quiz and a multiple choice, I'd probably guess correctly, um, but anything beyond <laughs> that, no. So I, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know, know a for, for my now. sins.
0: I've just looked it up. The post is currently held by John Healy. So, and I, I honestly, I can't remember a single thing John Healy said, bearing in mind that we're now currently in a, um, a, I, a sort yeah, of a just global international. That. Yeah. Yeah. I,
2: uh, it's, it, it, yeah. It, I was going to say, it, it's interesting how uh, there's, an invasion has occurred. There's been the biggest land war on European soil since World War II. And although it's understandable why ABA are concentrating on refugees, it is also interesting how not once have they made any clear statement about what Britain should be doing in Europe about the actual battle rather than what is happening back here.
0: Mm, Yeah, I mean, and I haven't heard any comments from him he's got no kind of press coverage and and it's a real shame really I think it's important for a democracy that that we have you know a, um, an opposition who are able and capable of representing different views and holding the government to account and I have to say I think Sakir Keir has been in a difficult position because a lot of the, the government moves have been the right moves and have been in the national interest and, and he, he's had to kind of sort of go along with that but there does come a point where you think, when are you going to come up with some new ideas and and start trying to trying to bash the government with them? Frankly, possibly so that the government can can pinch them. Um, you know, it, it's a, it's a it's a it's a real shame at the moment. But but yeah, I mean, I, I kind of I, I completely agree with you. I think the Conservatives have, have got a policy, and Labour Labour don't really seem to. Um, I mean, that kind of leads us nicely on to my next question, really, which is how, how do you think that the the Conservatives are kind of handling the the Ukraine crisis at the moment. What do you think the government's getting right, and perhaps more importantly, what do you think the government um, could could do, could be doing better on?
2: I'll probably go for the easy answer. With uh, I, I agree with what most of the um, editor is saying, in which the Conservative Party's handling of this of this crisis has been pretty flawless thus far. I think our our response has been measured, appropriate and pretty carefully balanced with a very good identification of the risks around it. And I would just say, from invasion onwards, Ben Wallace rightfully has been championing the fact that we were the first country to be sending lethal aid to Ukraine a a few weeks prior to that invasion happening. And that is just a long list, the start of a long list of things which I think we, we have done right. Um, I would also commend the government for, again, from the very start, trying to explain why imposing a no-fly zone carries serious and considerable risks. Um, and to go to link back to your last question, the fact that Sakir Keir Starmer hasn't really been able to, to land any blows is um, mainly because I think the, the government's handling has been strong.
0: Yeah, I mean, I suppose one one area for kind of potential, um, you know, one one work on point is probably the situation with the kind of refugee crisis. Um, I've been reading about um, a lot about how difficult it is for Ukrainian refugees to be kind of, to, to get into the UK. I mean, do you think we have a kind of moral obligation to those people?
2: Uh, it's clearly a very fine, tightrope to walk. I think we, we do. I think that the picture is, changed, you take into account, it is sort of on our doorstep. It is Europe. I think it was unhelpful that there was some slightly wayward tweets early on in the invasion, which, which gave the wrong impression to the public at large about the Conservatives' view towards refugees from Ukraine. The response I've seen from most MPs and most um, Conservative leading commentators is that um, we should be looking to settle lots of Ukrainian refugees here and we have a moral obligation to, to do so. Has the government's response been perfect on this bit? No. But I think you, you, you start to get in a very complicated um, situation of what, at what point should a conflict, if you go for any conflict in the world and there are refugees and they, everyone in Ethiopia, should be able to come here, but I think most people would say that that situation is not the same.
0: So, so, so I guess what you're trying to say is that um, that whilst we need to kind of look to help Ukrainian refugees who are fleeing the country, we don't want to um, permanently remove huge echelons of society from the Ukraine. Uh, you know, or assume that the Ukraine will not be a country that they will want to be returning to. And we need to kind of have a flexible system whereby we can settle people who are genuinely in need and fleeing from war, but also perhaps n- not try and just wantonly encourage the entire country to empty out into different parts of Europe and and leave the Ukraine, you know, really with, with, with very little, basically only the, the people who are too poor to leave remaining there.
2: Yeah, and I also think it is important to keep the long-term goal in mind, which is we're more than happy to house these refugees during this horrific war. But there is clearly an aspiration and a hope that this all will end, and they'll be in a place to be able to return and start afresh. And I think we, we do need to have that in the back of our minds. Absolutely,
0: moment. yeah, absolutely, George. Yeah, completely. I, I agree with you there. Um, uh, so we sort of touched on, on where the government can kind of improve, um, you know, and you and I have, have spoken about this previously, but do you think the ISR now needs a rethink um, and will we be increasing our defence spending in the future? You know, has this crisis caused a step change in our defence analysis, raised uh, the issues of defence uh, in the public eye? And do you think that ministers will be making, uh, making changes to their plans? Do You think Rishi Sunak is going to have to, dig into his giant pockets and, uh, and, and try and sort of um, increase the defence budget?
2: I think it's definitely on the cards, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think the bigger... I, I think this whole crisis is going to ask some very important questions at the very heart of how the UK functions and sees itself, and in particular for the feds. As you've said, I don't necessarily think it's just about increasing spending. Um, The government announced that fantastic um, sort of lump sum in investment last year. So at the moment, I don't necessarily think we're crying out for more funding. Um, My my personal view is that it's more about how should we use that? And we need to think very carefully about the type of armed, armed forces that we'd like to have. The armed forces, as we know, have been declining um, in numbers for several years. Again, un- understandable. But for me, there is a point when you have to say, what number does our army, for example, become a defense force? And I think we are beginning to gust into that territory. And I think this, 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 this crisis uh, forces us to reevaluate what we want our armed forces for. More often now in the past few years, we've seen more requests for the army to to do sort of domestic projects like COVID vaccinations, flood relief. Just today, the parliamentary debate, um, a Liberal Democrat MP called on the prime minister to um, send in the armed forces to deal with the Ukrainian refugees. Personally, I think armed forces should have at its core the ability to sustain significant war fighting against a peer threat. And at the moment, I'm not filled with confidence that it is able to do so. And that is for some cuts in capabilities over the years, cuts in numbers, because ultimately um, a deterrent for someone like Putin or China is in a large amount due to the size of that force.
0: No, I, here, here, you know, I, I I, couldn't agree more. And there's only so much that, you know, drones and cyber warfare can do. Um, but, you know, when we're, when we're looking at some of the scenes from um, some of the cities in the Ukraine, um, it, it's very clear that, that you know, when you've got Ukrainian paratroopers reporting, there's hand-to-hand fighting in the streets. Uh, that's certainly not being done by robot dogs or, um, yeah. you know, people sign their living rooms in,
2: in, yeah, in London, you know, Um, (laughs) I think that that raises an interesting point and something I I overheard a friend saying last week, which is the idea of hollow capabilities. I wouldn't necessarily go that far for us, but I think the armed forces, and in particular, the army, has has tended to, in the last few years, start launching and announcing capabilities, which, when you actually start to tap on the edge, you Mm. wonder how sustainable they are. Mm. And when you note, for example, that the army is at 72,000, approximately, is it really the right call to be starting to set up a rangers force when yeah. we are struggling to field a fully armored brigade, let alone a division. So talking about drones, cyber warfare, absolutely fantastic, love the idea, great concept and a very forward yeah. way of thinking, but yeah. ultimately who flies the drones, who conducts the, who conducts the um, attacks online, and that yeah. is people. Yeah, absolutely, and that actually that, that's that's
0: nice. So I've got kind of one final question for you. You know, your your network um, uh, is is much more current than than mine in, in sort of um, in terms of serving military personnel. And without going into specifics or naming names, you know, what, what what's the what's the feeling like on the inside? You know, what's how's morale like? What's the what's the general consensus about um, what's going on and our kind of NATO commitments?
2: I think in the short term from the invasion, morale's high. I think people in the armed forces have been very encouraged by the public and, and the West's full backing of a robust response to Putin and also a uh, shot in the arm for thought, hey, the armed forces doesn't, hasn't really getting, been, been getting talked about in the media much for the past sort of five, ten years very rare that it actually makes it onto the front page. This is our chance to get ourselves some probably well overdue attention. Um, In the medium to long term, I still think people are holding their breath to, to an extent. I think the political will to deploy armed forces is extremely low. And that makes people who are still serving question sometimes why am I here unless I'm going to be used in some operational context? Now that Afghanistan is gone, Operation Shader in Iraq has been drawn down, um, the, the offer to someone wanting to join the army, for example, is quite hard to make, um, with arguably the, the, your, your most predicted career being conducting your training maybe conducting a short-term training team overall and then for the rest of your time just doing large-scale training exercises no one wishes for war obviously no one wishes for conflict but I think our armed forces are losing operational experience quite quickly and that is something that does need to be although quite quite bleak does need to be topped up to ensure that we have the experience that if that ultimate crisis comes we can draw on Those people's experiences and the things they've learned to ensure that we are ultimately those who come out on top.
0: And 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 uh, you know, people may lose sight of this, but that's that's actually what it's all about: is is coming out on top. And 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 unfortunately, when you kind of get into war fighting and that sort of when you when you're at the sharp end, that's all that really matters. Um, You know, who who you vote for. and 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 what your kind of personal proclivities are, and, and what what parts of you know the political sphere you're interested in. Um, it doesn't matter if you if you haven't if you haven't come through at the other side um, in in that respect. So, George, thank you so much for speaking to us on the podcast. Um, really, really you appreciate you me. taking some time. Yeah, and um, and I hope you have a good rest of the week. And uh, and and you'll be listening out to this episode uh, when it comes out uh, on the first of April.
2: Of course. Thank you very much, James.
0: Thanks, George. Thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you for listening to this
0: month's edition of the CF Armed Forces podcast. For more information on our organisation, please go
2: to www.cfarmedforces.org. We hope you join us again next month.